Omega Metroid Podcast. My name is Andy Spateri, as always, joined by Kodalaski. Dak, how are you on this wonderful day? Busy day. Very busy day, especially for uh, those of us who enjoy a little Zelda, for sure. Uh, for those of us who enjoy Metroid, yes. it's uh, just another day. <laughs> uh, another day of suffering. But for Zelda fans, awesome announcement today, and otherwise... I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, it was a nice three-day weekend with Labor Day, so I was able to enjoy that. Did a little streaming. I've uh, been playing some Super Mario Sunshine. I'm thinking about speedrunning this game, uh, which I'm excited about. And I got a new mouse, as I was just telling you before the stream, which I am also very excited about. And I don't know. Life's pretty good right man. All things considered, life's pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, man. It's uh, It's been a crazy day. Um, I was so busy this morning with the news of uh, Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. I am super, super excited about that. I'm in, you know, I'm in a fired up mood. I'm, I'm ready to, to talk about that at length, which I will be doing later this week over on our Zelda show, The Champions Cast. Uh, we're even going to release that episode a little bit early. So if you want to check it out, it should be available probably like Friday or so. But yeah, man, anytime that you get these these announcements out of nowhere out of thin air uh and you wake up to a new zelda game or just a new nintendo game you know that it's going to be a good day had a good weekend mm -hmm. and uh you know all all the excitement with today's uh announcement aside i was really looking forward to talking about what we are here to talk about today and that is the intertwined history of retro studios and the crazy unbelievable true story of the development of metroid prime and we're gonna get into that unbelievable tale we're gonna have a little bit of story time today but before we get there Dak, i did want to just spend a minute talking about the release of hyrule warriors for today and what that means for the rest of nintendo's 2020 lineup because now we see their holiday lineup kind of taking shape we've got Mario All-Stars in September, we've got Pikmin in October, we've got Hyrule Warriors in November. Really, there's only kind of the the December slot to to fill out here. And then, you know, that's probably going to be it for the rest of the year. Are you thinking that today's announcement has any impact on these rumors of the, you know, the rumors that we've heard bandied about of this new 2D Metroid that's going to release in 2020? Do you think it's still possible or is kind of the... The window tightening for that release hmm you know i mean i can't believe that nintendo's really gonna get away going through this year with like releasing like three games <laughs> like they really they've pulled it off i gotta hate it to them um you know i don't know because i saw a tweet um on twitter earlier today that was talking about uh, from Imran Khan, who is from Game Informer, or ex-senior editor of Game Informer. Okay, well, either way, uh, he was talking about how this is likely, like, the last thing we're really seeing for the rest of the year. Like, this is probably it, aside from maybe, you know, a small announcement here or there, maybe one more game. So, in terms of that, I'm wondering, well, how does Nintendo view something like, obviously, Metroid Prime Trilogy... Immediately, I was like, well, if this is all they have planned for the rest of the year, there's no way that they're going to release Metro Prime Trilogy in 2020. It's not going to happen. But then, when I saw that tweet, I was thinking, well, knowing Nintendo, they probably consider Metroid Prime Trilogy to be a small thing. For us, it's a pretty big deal, but for them, you know, Metroid's not a priority, and I don't think tri Trilogy is a priority for them either. So, I, I could think... I would go, I'm sorry to interrupt, I would go so far as to even say, I think like a new 2D Metroid might not be like a big deal for them. Like, I, I think Metroid I also Prime agree. would be a big deal, but ugh, yeah. I think the only thing that's probably a big uh, deal for them in terms of Metroid is Metroid Prime 4. So in terms of the trilogy, I could see it being released this year if they consider it like a small thing. Like they just shadow drop it and they're like, oh yeah, Metroid Prime Trilogy come out in December. I could 100% see that happening because to them it's no big deal. For us, it's a big deal, but for them, it's kind of, you know, it's a pittance. A pittance. It's nothing. Uh, that being said, right. I think this does kind of round out what we're going to see from Nintendo throughout the rest of the year. Um, there, even though this is like a quote-unquote spinoff or whatever, this is definitely, a, like, as far as Nintendo is concerned, a pretty uh, major Zelda release, right? So I would consider it oh, a yeah. pretty major game release overall for them. So I don't know what else they're really going to try to stack up in that area of the year, considering they really haven't stacked up any games in the rest of the year pre previously so 
Yeah, I mean, with, off that tweet, I was thinking, oh, maybe we just won't get Trilogy till 2021. But at the same time, I could really see them just shadow dropping Prime Trilogy. And I hate the word shadow dropping, just just dropping it, whatever. Um, and just releasing it, like, with no fanfare whatsoever. Like, three weeks before it actually comes out or whatever it is. Um, or maybe, maybe not even doing an announcement. So, I, I don't know. I could. It, it depends really on how Nintendo looks at it. If they consider it, like, a big enough deal... As a game in and of itself, it probably will be coming in 2021, but I don't think they do. So yeah, maybe we could see them just randomly drop it towards the end of the year, just to, just so they can get us Metroid fans to shut up. Uh, who knows? Well, so here here's my thing. It's like so we've seen Paper Mario, we've seen Pikmin, and now we've seen Hyrule Warriors, uh, and even I guess Mario 3D All Stars, all kind of, for lack of a better word, shadow dropped or like very limited release windows. I think Paper Mario had three months. Uh, Hyrule Warriors is going to have two months. Pikmin had about three months as well. So, like, I feel like if they don't announce it by October, like, probably the beginning or maybe maybe mid-October at the latest, like, it ain't happening for the rest of the year. So I was thinking, too, like, you know, this... And you could tell just by the positioning of Hyrule Warriors, like, in, you know, the Black, the Black Friday kind of time slot, this is their big game, right? Like, this is what they're putting their eggs in the basket behind. Mm -hmm. But, like... For for the last couple of years, like there has been some pretty high profile December releases too, like Smash in twenty eighteen, Xenoblade in twenty seventeen. I guess there wasn't a whole lot for last year. I could be wrong, but um, you know, it it does make me think that like maybe there is something left in the tank for twenty twenty, uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully that could be Metroid. But you know, I feel I feel a little bit less optimistic about. 2d metroid coming out in 2020 now than i did a month ago just because of you know the arrival of pikmin 3 in the october time slot i think that would have been a really good time for a metroid game to come out um december seems i don't know december doesn't seem super likely to me but i guess we'll see you know we will we will see yeah i mean you know you look at it i could i could see december for trilogy because even though there are games coming out towards the end of the year they aren't like they're still not like main games like it's not a main zelda game it is i mean i guess they kind of are treating it like one because it is directly tied to a main zelda game but it is still like a spin-off uh you know pikmin 3 is a port um you know so i don't know maybe they will just port it over and be like hey whatever just get just get it done with but i would like to think that they would put a little more fanfare into it in you know the super mario 3d all-stars that's another port um so who knows i really I, you know it's hard to know when like nintendo like makes moves in silence essentially like we really don't know like what their game plan is what their vision is what they are trying to do you know so uh, they just kind of do stuff for the and i also i think the, the the age of calamity like hyrule warriors is a really cool idea uh, i'm not a huge you know warriors fan and i didn't play hyrule warriors already i think there were two right or there i don't know there was dlc or something i haven't played any of it and I, but the the lore implications and actually wow breath of the wild but with plot is enticing to me so i'll probably check it out but who knows maybe this is like nintendo's just last hurrah for the rest of the year maybe they still have something in store for us i think if they do they won't tell us until they actually drop it so it's all speculation you know and i guess to kind of counteract the point i just made we had mario 3d all-stars with like literally two weeks of build-up so these these crazy bastards could do anything i hope you're right i would hope that they would give metroid prime trilogy and especially a new 2D Metroid, a little bit more um, runtime or like, you know, chance for people to get excited about it. I think that you could probably drop Trilogy on the Switch and like have a shorter release span because enough people know Metroid Prime, enough people know that it's associated with like these really high quality games. I think that that would be okay. But like for a new game, man, I feel like you got to really kind of get the hype train rolling on that. You know, this is the first new like, really brand new 2D Metroid since, I mean, since Metroid Fusion, pretty much. The rest have just been remakes. So, yeah, we'll we'll see how this kind of affects the rest of Nintendo's 2020 lineup. And, uh, you know, again, if you want to check out my, my full thoughts on uh, Age of the Calamity, check out, uh, check out the Champions Cast on Friday, because we are going to be talking about it at length. And I'm super, super excited about this release and i'm with you i wasn't a hyrule warriors guy but you know the fact that this one actually has like kind of purpose and plot mm -hmm. behind it uh instantly makes it more interesting to me absolutely so yeah 
Well, um, that, you know, that's all the exciting news from today. But let's get into the real reason that we are here today, Dak. We have got uh, one of those stories that sounds so crazy that it has to be true. You know, it's it's kind of funny how like 20 years later, we were talking about Metroid Prime 4. And there's this, you know, I guess you could say it's a troubled development. It was uh, originally in the hands of another developer and then taken away, restarted, built from the ground up midway through development. We have no information on when this game is coming out. Very, you know, a lot of fans are very worried about Metroid Prime 4. Um, but, you know, some of them are reassured because the, the property is back in the hands of Retro Studios. It just, it's, it all is kind of a nice, like, coming full circle moment to me because it just, it it reminds me of the the wild ride that we went through to get Metroid Prime 1 from Retro Studios almost 20 years ago at this point. So it's uh, it's kind of crazy how we're, we're almost back where we started. Yeah, and you know, I am very looking forward to the day when Metroid Prime 4 has been out maybe for weeks, months, or years maybe, and we learn about the actual development of the game. Like, if there was rumors about, like, five different Namco Bandai development teams working on it at the time, and then it being dropped and then redone with Retro, I want to know the actual facts of it. It was all just reporting and speculation that eventually kind of became, like, truth, but we don't really know, so I am looking forward to finding out how the development of this game, especially since, you know, we barely know anything about it since its announcement years ago, um, how it ended up going once we've played it, uh, you know, bar, you know, hopefully that it's a good game and I'd want to know about the development, just like Metroid Prime was a great game, despite its de- development, and we can now look back at it now, which I'm very looking forward to uh, getting into that. I would love, love, love if there was, like, a tell-all book about the Metroid Prime 4 development. That would be so awesome. Can you imagine if, like, poor Bandai Namco had nothing to do with Metroid Prime 4, but they've just kind of been, like, the kicking boys for this uh, for this development restart mm. for all these years? I think that'd be so funny. Yeah. I, you know, it definitely sounded like something that'd be plausible, and if it wasn't really... It was like out of their control, out of their hands, or they were just completely uninvolved, and I do feel bad for them. But hey, at least they were attached to Metroid Prime 4 in some respect, which I would consider an honor, uh, no matter how it went down. So we'll see, but I think there's probably some truth in there, if not the entire truth, and I'm sure if it isn't, there was some inkling of truth into what we knew so far. So far. At the end of the day, I think it probably, whatever happened, it's good that it happened, because it ended up being with Retro, and hopefully the game turns out great, but... Uh, their track record's been good, but, you know, we haven't seen Retro work on a Metroid game in, you know, a long time. It's a really a completely different studio at this point, I think. You know, uh, it's really only familiar yeah. by name at this point and location. So I, I I really just want the game to come out, but I really would love to learn those details, too. Well, to to get to where we're going, we have to learn from where we've been. So, Dak, let's, uh, let's kick off this story and tell everybody the incredible history of Retro Studios. Now, I want to give a shout-out to a really incredible Polygon article. It was written by Blake Hester. It was published in 2018. He interviewed 10 former Retro employees. Some of them went on record. Some of them spoke on condition of uh, anonymity. But it is a fascinating look into the studio and everything surrounding the development of that game. And I, I can't encourage people to go and read that article enough. That's basically what we've based our our narrative on here today is that article and the stories that were told. So uh, if you want to read it, go and check it out. I'll link it in the show notes. But yeah, this is this is pretty unbelievable, this this story of how we got there. So I guess without further ado, I'll, I'll kind of start, start reading away here and we can interject and, and talk about some of the different points in the beats and history of Metroid Prime. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we have to go to 1998 to start off with. Uh, and we are going to meet a man named Jeff Spangenberg. Spangenberg, I think is his name. I think that's how you say it. If it's not, I'm Spangen- sorry. Spangenberg, Jeff Spangenberg. Yeah. Spangenberg? Okay. So Spangenberg formed... Uh, Retro Studios on October 1st, 1998. That's my birthday, by the way. Uh, Not 1998, but October 1st. Um, He was originally an employee of Acclaim, and he worked on uh, Turok, NBA Jam, and a bunch of other studios. Uh, So he was a pretty wealthy guy. He was eventually laid off from Acclaim in 1998 and sued them 
and won a settlement from them and used the settlement money to form Retro Studios. Originally, was working out of his garage, but very quickly, he secured a deal with Nintendo of America and proceeded to build what sounds like a state-of-the-art studio. They had uh, the first motion capture studio in Texas. They had uh, movie theaters for showing off progress. They had 120 employees. This sounded like a real high-tech operation. You know, they, they went and got, it sounds like, the best of the best. Yeah, this was... I thought this was really interesting when I reread this. First, I think it was the one of Austin, Texas's first motion capture stages. But nonetheless, what I thought was interesting was how he got the deal from Nintendo of America, right? Because later, what yeah. we learn in the story, and I don't want to spoil or anything, but the fact that Retro was almost completely disconnected from Nintendo of Japan, who is, you know, the the core of, of Nintendo game development, essentially. Uh, not getting, like, a straight-up deal with them, but getting it from Nintendo of America, who as we all know, is essentially just a PR branch of the entire, you know, the American side of the Nintendo Corporation, that they got to deal with them and not with the main Nintendo of Japan company, I thought was interesting because they, they really put a lot of faith in Retro multiple times, and you'll hear that throughout the story, multiple times on a company that didn't really have an, a background to deserve or earn that and was untested and unproven hadn't shipped a game yet like so there was a lot of faith that nintendo put into the studio not just throughout its history but right at the get-go and especially from the noa branch and not the nintendo of japan branch uh really goes to show how they were looking to try and do something new but also put a lot of faith somewhere that it really could have easily not worked out for them it's it's interesting too that Nintendo of America was involved in recruiting studios at all. Mm -hmm. To me, like it, it that just seems like something that you know Nintendo of Japan, where they're making the games, would have a more hands-on involvement with. So that stuck out to me as just kind of a strange little tidbit. Um, and I was also like, I, I I just wonder how that process works. Like if you are uh, a founder of a game studio and you're you've built a new studio. Do you pitch Nintendo and say like, Hey, I've, you know, I've got this great studio. We're working on these games. Are you interested in an ownership stake? Um, so very, very fascinating stuff. And I would love to learn a little bit more on like how that process actually works. Cause it's, it's, it does. It's, it just seems so odd to me. You got to definitely spend money to make money. I'm sure the guy, you know, once, you know, he created this whole thing had, like you said, the first, uh, motion cap studio in Austin, Texas had a huge facility over a hundred employees, in 19 or uh, whatever, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, you come to Nintendo with that, right? And they're obviously feeling great with the N64 and the Game Boy and all that. Um, he probably had a really solid pitch. And considering that he, even that the studio didn't have experience, he did, right? And he could, you know, cite successes in the industry prior to Retro, where that might have been enough for Nintendo's like, oh, successful game developer, new brand spanking new, brand spankenberg uh studio right in and right in the states um and maybe that just would have been that was just enough like the stars align and that was enough to convince them it does it seems like a pretty not a rags to riches story but it just seems pretty unbelievable mm -hmm. um so retro was uh not bought out but they nintendo secured a ownership stake in them for 15 percent and spagenberg started working on gamecube games even though we're still in 1998 uh, they were developing four games, NFL Retro Football, a car combat game called Thunder Rally, which almost made me think of like Rocket League, kind of like they were ahead of their time or something. I don't know. Hmm. Um, the the infamous Ravenblade, which I think that everybody who's ever heard of Retro Studios knows a little bit about, and an untitled action-adventure game, which will be very important to the story a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. um, so everything seems hunky-dory. There's a really good buzz, high-energy However, by 2000, two years later, all four games had stalled and were nowhere near completion, uh, in part because of the lack of GameCube development kits provided to Retro by both Nintendo and then the higher-ups at Retro, right. and which leads into the second part, which, which was the mismanagement of the company, it sounds like. Now, from from this you know article, it kind of implies that... Uh, Spangenberg or Spangenberg went in and kind of wanted to make retro a little bit of a different feel studio. So he brought in some like people that were kind of into like tabletop RPGs and stuff like that to kind of bring a different take on what game development could be. But it sounds like it didn't really work. So a lot of these people weren't really 
you know, attuned to what actually went into making like a video game on a video game console. So management repeatedly over and over again from the people that were interviewed in this article was cited as unfocused and just basically out to lunch. Yeah, I don't think the idea uh, of the fundamental idea of, you know, finding people who aren't exactly from the industry or have different experiences is a bad one, but they need direction and guidance, right? And it definitely seemed like they were just kind of put right. together like, okay, we have these Star Wars animators, we have these pen and paper tabletop guys, and we have people from the video game industry, we have people from my previous studio, from this studio and that studio, and put them all together, sounds like a dream team, but then he just left, you know, and, you know, just kind of like, all right. Uh, figure it out. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to go have some pool parties and drive around my Ferrari. So, I, which I can't, I <laughs> yeah. can't entirely blame him for that. But I, you know, I, it definitely seemed like he was, um, not exactly looking well, too we'll, far forward. We'll, we'll get to him in a, yeah. In a second. Yeah. Old, old they definitely needed we'll some more him. guidance and leadership that just wasn't there. It, yeah, I actually agree. I think the idea of like bringing in unconventional people, like from the tabletop world, is like a really cool idea. But then you have to place them in the right roles. Mm -hmm. um, it it just kind of sounds like they weren't placed in the right roles where their expertise could be applied in a way that really augmented the games instead of like you know it sounds like it just actively detracted from them. Uh, particularly the point where they got their GameCube development kit and didn't know what to do with it, so it sat in their office for like months it sounds like so it's it's just kind of a cluster of errors two years later in 2000 we really have nothing to show for you know the the two years of development the two years of salaries and then nintendo of japan comes to pay a visit in the year 2000 and this was described as a bloodbath and i could i would love to have been a fly on the wall mm -hmm. to see this meeting take place um, they, they didn't explicitly say who was there. They kind of implied that uh, Shigeru Miyamoto made the trip. But basically, Nintendo of Japan absolutely hated everything that Retro was doing. They thought that the games didn't fit into the Nintendo mold. They weren't impressed with the progress that was being made. There was nothing to show Nintendo for all of the years of development. And uh, they basically gutted everything. They basically said, you have to start from scratch. The only thing... To make it out of this bloodbath was the untitled fourth game, the sci-fi action-adventure game that allegedly was starring three female protagonists. Miyamoto suggested that they flip it and turn it into an idea he had, which was for a first-person Metroid game, and that was the direction that they went. They stopped working on all these other games. They focused entirely on what was going to be this new first-person Metroid, and... The three games were, were canceled, and unfortunately, that meant that basically half of Retro Studios was laid off. The entire team's working on Retro Football and Thunder Rally, and then later, many of the Ravenblade team was laid off. Some of them were brought over to work on Metroid Prime, but at the time, I think Nintendo put out a presser that said, you know, we've just released 26 employees and we're restructuring Retro Studios. So very, very tumultuous for the first couple of years here of Retro's existence. Yeah, it was necessary, though. I mean, the studio should never have been working on four games at once. And they weren't just working on four games at once. They were also building a proprietary engine to run those four games on. So in those two years, they not only had those 100 or so uh, employees split over four games, but they had an additional team that was working on a completely new engine to support and build those four other games. And I mean, that's a lot, you know, they just, they, there was way too much to begin with the, a lot of it had to be cut down. Like this was, even though it was a bloodbath, it was so necessary. I mean, the, the studio would not have survived. They had way too much on their plate. They had way too much excess, way too much stuff that could be cut and was cut. Um, so it was unfortunate for like the people who like were working there, obviously you never want to be in that situation. How they handled the cuts was pretty poor, but it was, it was so necessary for them because the, the studio hundred percent would have gone under without that kind of guidance. I don't know if those four games would have ended up being successful. Clearly, there was some kind of plan because they were working on an NFL game, which they would have needed a license for. So, like, maybe, if anything, that was probably the only game that might have taken off a little bit. Um, but, yeah, that was it was something that was so desperately needed to happen for Retro, even though it was, you know, a, a really bad situation. It was a blessing in disguise for them. 
because there was no way the studio would have survived. I doubt any of those four games really ended up being good while being worked on simultaneously with all these other games and an engine and this and that. And it's, I think, you know, at the end of the day, Nintendo Japan showed up and was like a guardian angel for them, right? Like they, <laughs> they showed up and gave them the guidance they needed, gave them the focus they needed, had them just, you know, trim the fat. And, uh, without that, without that visit, which probably would have happened inevitably, but without that visit, I don't think we would have, we definitely wouldn't have seen the Metroid Prime series as it is. I don't think we would see Retro as it is. Uh, that was a pretty historic day, I'm sure, for the industry in general. And again, that goes back to how the deal was initially made with Nintendo of America and not Nintendo of Japan. Like, it's so wild to me that they put so much investment into a studio that, like, the main part of the company had no idea what was going on there for over two years and had to, like, physically show up to see it. And, like, yeah, they had, like, a couple tech demos. Like, I know there's some... Uh, there's some like Raven Blade, like a minute or two of like footage floating around the internet that you could find. Um, so they definitely had something to show, but yeah, it wasn't even remotely close to their standards. And Miyamoto was like, "Oh well, this is a perfect opportunity <laughs> for this first first Metroid game." Well, see, something you just said really stuck out to me there, actually, and this stuck out to me while I was reading the article. So we have development that is floundering during the course of these two years. I'm wondering, I'm like, what took them so long to follow up with yeah. this studio that they've, you know, invested a significant amount of money in? Like, you know, I'm assuming that things are looking pretty good through 1998, maybe in the first half of 1999. But like, when you're not seeing anything, when you're not seeing any results, what takes you so long to get there? I mean, I mean honestly, when you hear that the studio is developing four different games, doesn't that kind of send alarm bells ringing to you? And not only four different games, but like, these are four very different games that you can't even have any crossover on in terms of the engine. Like you got a football game, you got a game where you're driving cars, you've got an RPG, and you've got presumably a third-person action adventure game. Like none of those are similar to each other at all. And like even actually going back further with what you said, like when is Nintendo ever put out like a licensed sports game? Like wouldn't that be? like an alarm bell for them like hey they're working on this football game that's not really something in our wheelhouse like so it makes me wonder and like obviously retro would have had to have shown them what they were working on uh i can't imagine they were developing this football game in secret unless it was kind of like an arcade style football game i don't know but there's just like there's a lot of really weird red flags here and it makes me wonder why this meeting didn't happen sooner or maybe they were just so insignificant to nintendo that it wasn't a priority but you know it, it does seem strange to me that they invested money into this company and you know the company is just bleeding money in terms of salary and, and production and they're getting nothing for it and they let it run for as long as they did yeah i think it's just a case of like the right hand not talking to the left i mean when you have a huge company like this it's not uncommon to have one part of the company doing something that other parts have no idea what's going on you know, Nintendo of America probably made this deal and it was like, all right, Retro, you're good to go. And uh, Nintendo of Japan probably had like an inkling of idea of like what had happened and all of that. But, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that they really had any other any in other info other than what they got from Nintendo of America. And Nintendo of America isn't a big development or a branch or even a big part of bra uh, branch of Nintendo overall, right? It's really, you know, Nintendo of Japan is the big, huge part of it. So... I'm not surprised that there wasn't a lot of communication, not a lot of follow-up. That's what ha I mean, it still happens today in 2020, where some parts of a company sure. have no idea what's going on with another part of the company, or it's outsourced, and so they have to take care of it, this and that. Um, I'm sure, like, Nintendo Japan, like, approved a deal for Nintendo of America and, like, a budget, and then Nintendo of America, like, mo moved that money and made the deal happen, but doesn't really have, like, an overseeing capacity, and Nintendo of Japan isn't directly, you know... Um, tied to the deal, so they weren't overseeing it. So it was kind of just a situation where, well, it's not my problem. Well, it's not my problem. Well, whose problem is it? And ended up, you know, finally becoming Nintendo of Japan because they had to go there physically. But I'm not surprised that that's how it went. I'm sure Nintendo had money to work with, and they were looking for new opportunities in game development. They were presented with a good one, uh, and they decided to leap on it and kind of hope for the best and see how it would go down. And worst case scenario is what happened. But in another reality, it might have just gone great from the get-go. It would have been seen as a genius, genius move. It just so happened that's not what the case was.
You know, it's it's strange to think about Nintendo of America in this, you know, in this kind of situation because half of me is wondering, like, you know, they okay, they finally got some agency. They've went and they've, uh, you know, they've acquired this studio and they've got this working relationship with them. Um, I wonder if they weren't almost a little bit defensive of the studio or maybe presenting them in a better light to Nintendo of Japan than maybe you know, then maybe they actually should have been. Uh, yeah. it just It's funny to think. And you know what? Honestly, not that much later after Metroid Prime, we have a new Nintendo of America president, Reggie fils mm-hmm. So it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, how, you know, how this, this whole kind of deal affected the Nintendo of America structure, if it affected it at all. So interesting to think about. Uh, I be- And I believe uh, Tatsumi Kimishima was still... Yeah, I think he was still Nintendo of America president at the time. So, interesting to see this uh, this all unfold. But, um, yeah, it, it was a bloodbath, apparently. And uh, that's kind of like getting called into the principal's office when Nintendo of Japan is flying across the world to come and visit your studio. So, Ravenblade, as, uh, as everyone that's been following Retro over the years knows, was cancelled. It seems like every few years there's, like, rumors of Retro kind of revisiting this idea and like remaking this game i don't it's kind of folklore at this point but i i would kind of like to see it just just for the again to come full full circle uh, i i think it's probably best remained in the past like any elements of raven blade that we'd probably even want in the games were probably worked into other retro games like as we know a bunch of members from the raven blade team ended up working on metroid prime so and i'm sure they took some elements of that and, and even looking from the gameplay footage, it was kind of looked like a... It actually kind of looked like a Zelda Hyrule Warriors kind of game, to be honest. Like this fantasy, like, hack-and-slash RPG-ish looking kind of thing. Nothing that, like... I'm Nothing very exciting or impressive. It, it wasn't exciting, no, I don't think. But I, I think it would be kind of poetic to see, like, this game come out and, like... You know, it would obviously be completely different. I'm sure in every single aspect. But, yeah, I don't know. It, it would kind of be poetic to me and i i've always been low-key kind of rooting for it to to make a resurgence one day see i'm Um, just i want to read to you i'm i'm sorry but i'm just waiting for uh the football game to come out that's what (laughs) i want them to release nfl retro football screw raven blade give me nfl retro football and thunder rally which you remember you said uh i i feel like that football game became def jam then like football or whatever it ended up being (laughs) um and you said Thunder Rally might have been a, a Rocket League kind of game. What was the what's the other um like racing battle game? Like the Sony one? Um Oh Twisted, twisted Metal. Metal. That's what I always thought it was gonna be. Yeah. I always thought it was gonna be like a, a Nintendo Twisted Metal, which I thought would be a pretty cool idea. But I guess they did not agree. Well, I mean, you already had Twisted Metal. I think it existed by that point, right? That was a PlayStation One game. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like I think they want yeah. to do like their own their own version of it maybe for for Nintendo Play. I don't know. I guess they didn't cuz they they scrapped it, but who knows. Nah, who knows. I want to read to you a quote that really stuck out to me. And you you kind of mentioned it earlier. We're like, "Why are they trusting the studio that has no results to their name with such a big franchise such as Metroid?" So, this line stuck out to me like a sore thumb. Quote one thing unclear to the developers we talked to was why exactly Miyamoto and Nintendo of Japan trusted Retro with a new take on the Metroid IP. They could only speculate. Miyamoto doesn't like the Metroid series in terms of the old Metroids. He doesn't get them. Those aren't the types of games he likes to play, an anonymous former Retro employee said. At the end of the day, I don't know what the decision was that made them trust us because there really wasn't much for us to be trusted on. In Japan, Metroid was never really a big thing. It was more of a big thing over here. You know, we all know that, but it still stings to read that in print, does it not? Eh, not really. I can't really expect everybody to like every kind of thing or even Metroid. Um, and I guess it's just because... We're, we're not talking everybody, though. This is like the godfather of video games, man. This is Shigeru Miyamoto. To hear he doesn't like Super Metroid or Metroid... But he me, likes Metroid Prime, think... baby! Woo! Let's go! <laughs> Um, I don't know. I guess it's because yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, it, it made, it hurt my, it almost like hurt my feelings almost or made me sad that like my idol didn't love one of my favorite video games. Mm, 
I see. I don't consider Miyamoto like an idol of mine, and I don't really like tie my identity too hard to video games. So it's like it's not an offense to me that someone of his caliber doesn't like it or not. It doesn't no, has no effect on me. Um, does it suck because it affects like th their development of of one of my favorite franchises? Sure. Um, but this is also, again, like you said, this is stuff that we've known for so long that even now I'm desensitized it. So desensitized to it. So for me to like really give you an objective answer, I kind of can't. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that's okay. Like Miyamoto is not going to love every type of game and I understand where he's coming from. It's not like a Super Mario Brothers. It's not a Legend of Zelda. It wasn't even like a Kid Icarus. So, um, and it isn't big in Japan. So I don't know. I think that's okay. I'm I'm glad that he had the idea though to do a first person shooter because for FPS games, at least at the time and, and still today, really aren't a huge genre in Japan either. So that he at least liked that and thought of that idea, I think is cool because you know it still shows that he had some interest in it. He still showed that he had some awareness of what was you know gaining traction and popularity at the time in the whole industry. And um, going back to the quote of you know. I don't know what the decision was that made them trust us. I think this was obviously, I think this was pretty obvious why they gave it to Retro. Number one, they're a Western studio and FPS games were gaining traction, were more, way more popular in the West than in the East. And two, they had a new studio that was very malleable that they could do essentially whatever they wanted with. So if they were going to take a new, uh, you know, IP or do something new, this is a perfect opportunity. A bunch of resources not now not doing anything because they just canceled all these other games. It's in the West. They now have given them a bunch of focus and all of that and, and trimmed the fat, you know, to, to go through the red tape of getting another studio together or ha and, and J Nintendo of Japan development studios weren't going to do it. So I thought this was this made a lot of sense to give it to Retro. Like, sure, they didn't have the track record, but the context and the situation, situation the scenario that they were in made Retro probably the best pick they had at the time. And it gave them something to do now that they cancel all this stuff. Whether or not Miyamoto liked 2D Metroids doesn't really affect me or bother me, and I don't really care. But I thought it was cool how he was, you know, he was on the zeitgeist. He knew what was going to be popular. He knew what would be a good idea and gave it to, I think, one of the best possible choices. You know, I mean, at the time, you'd, you'd look at it and say, like, this is one of the worst possible choices, though. I, well, I, yeah, in I, hindsight. See, I'm I mean. a little bit more cynical. Well, in, in hindsight, sure. But, like, I, I feel like I'm more cynical on this because, in my mind, I'm like... Okay, so Miyamoto doesn't like Metroid. We all knew that, but you know that still still stings. It's like when when your grandmother says that you don't like your home cooked meal, that you've been trying to perfect her recipe or something like that. So he doesn't like it. That's fine. He he's gonna give it to a Western studio that's bleeding money, mismanaged. They just want to get some kind of return for their investment. Here's Metroid. Make us a game. I you know obviously I don't want to say that they didn't that they wouldn't have cared if it was good or not. But I, th I think that objective number one was to get something from this studio, something, yeah. some kind of return for their investment. And I think that that honestly is the case where it's like, okay, here's a franchise that we have. It's not near and dear to our hearts, work on it and, you know, give us something that we can sell to justify us paying you for the last, you know, uh, two, three years at this point. Uh, see, I think that's more so why they got Metroid rather than it was, you know, they had this grand idea to make, uh, to lean into Western kind of developers to make first person shooter games. Cause I, I don't really think that was the case either way. Like at the time, it, it just seems like such a bizarre pick. I mean, obviously in hindsight, we know that it worked out, you know, splendidly, but uh, just, I can't imagine the thought process in 2000 after laying off half your studio, canceling three games saying like, yeah, you've got to get this game out in two years. I mean, it's probably a combination of the two. I do think that they had, like, Miyamoto was aware of, like, the trends in Western gaming, but at the same time, they probably didn't care that much. Like, hey, whatever, like, if they, if they, if they're not successful, we'll close the studio and it's whatever, they didn't make a Metroid game. Like, I'm sure they didn't really care that much. It wasn't, like, a huge priority. It wasn't, like, a huge weight off their shoulders or anything to do this. They were like, yeah, hey, let's see what happens. It's not like they were making a Zelda game or a Mario game or a Pokemon game or whatever it is. Um, it it know, almost seems like they were willing to like, eh, to bet on like this being an other M kind of a game where it's like okay well if this is if this sucks then whatever it's a one and done but yeah. if it's good then maybe we have something yeah so very interesting to think about here um, let's move on to another part of our story that you alluded to earlier the history of retro studios is unfortunately the history of uh, Jeff Spankenberg as he so awesomely called him this guy 
seems like such a tool. He very much flaunts his wealth in your face. He was laying his, his staff off as he was driving his Ferrari to work. He would allegedly poach talent from a claim because he was sour about being laid off and then send like gifts to their HR representative in a mocking way. Uh, he, he would disappear for like months or even a year at a time during like the really crunch periods. And most, uh, most unintended like he ran what could be described as kind of a soft pornography website called sinful summer, where he would post pictures of his private pool parties that he had at his house. And he ran this website using the retro studio IP server. Oh boy. Yikes. <laughs> and, and, and legend. There was also, there was also rumors, uh, unfound rumors. I don't think these were ever proven, but there were rumors that employees were embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars. What is going on here? Yeah, that, that's probably pretty embellished. I'm not surprised. And I think it's pretty likely that some money was embezzled. Like clearly there was money being used for non game development purposes throughout retro's yes. uh, history, but hundreds of thousands of dollars is uh that's a lot of money to like just go missing especially in game development 20 years ago so i don't think they would have gotten away with hundreds of thousands of dollars in email, but tens of thousands yes i do think that could happen and i mean considering that uh, the spangenberg guy was very obviously using his money and and likely some retro money to to do this kind of stuff yeah i think that's probably has has some truth to it even though it might not be entirely true and obviously there's no real evidence to confirm that. Not that if there was, we'd be able to easily find it anyway, like 20 years ago or even or 20 years from then, even maybe even 10 years from then. Uh, but yeah, that's I mean, that sounds like a studio that, again, doesn't have a lot of guidance. The guy who's running it, you know, shows up once every few months and spends most of his days driving around in his car and hosting pool parties on weekdays at his place, which, again, um, hey, if I could host pool parties on weekdays, on workdays. I'd do it. I'd figure out a way to do it. Um, I might not run a, a porn website from my from my company, uh, uh, you know, IP address. This, this guy's house made me think of, so me and my fiance just finished watching Animal Kingdom where they have like a pool party like every day. And I'm just thinking like, dude, this must be what this guy's house was like on a Wednesday afternoon or something like that. Just like, what a crazy, stu- what a crazy story. I agree. I think... I think hundreds of thousands of dollars is kind of it's kind of pushing it. Like it's it's kind of one of those things where like there's a line and one kid whispers to the next kid one number and he whispers to the next kid and by the end of the line like the number is like a bajillion dollars or something like that. But I, yeah, I, I could totally see funds being misappropriated to potentially prop up this website business that he had going on. But like he just seemed like such a sleazeball. Uh, none of his former employees had anything good to say about him, and it very a executive very unnintendo like you know nintendo's this family friendly company and this guy just completely flies in the face of that and uh it wasn't long before nintendo basically bought him out of his own company they they purchased the remainder of his stock in retro studios for one million dollars um i don't know if that seems like too much or if it seems like a bargain but they paid just to get this guy out of the company and uh, we'll we'll visit him later in the story and follow up with him. But what what a what a story and what a personality to be to have in your in your small team at this point. Just it just flies in the face of what we think of Nintendo. It just it seems unbelievable to me. That's a lot of the time how these things work. You have this like cult of personality around one person who, uh, in spite of many negative things was able to get the you know the ball rolling i mean without this guy you wouldn't have retro you wouldn't have metroid prime but at the cost of a bunch of other things so you know so you don't a lot of people don't get wealthy just by being a good guy you know or being a good person um you gotta you gotta step on some people and make some morally questionable things and that's pretty much an understatement for this guy um so I honestly, I was looking back at this. I was like, only a million dollars. Like, I'm surprised. I, it was one of the situations. I think how this was written that like he either took that deal or like he wasn't getting another deal. And I'm sure he realized. Like, he saw the writing on the wall and he's like, uh, right. I should probably get out while I'm ahead. It very much sounds like he was basically going to be fired. Yeah, or I, it, as close to fired as you can be. Either that or Nintendo would have done something to like make it so that he would have been or the entire studio would have been ineffective. So I think right there he had an out and he took it. Um, 
probably the smartest decision <laughs> he, he would make and certainly burned a lot of bridges but hey he you know he hit that uh that that uh triple comma club or whatever it is double comma club however i don't know how many zeros are in it but you know <laughs> he 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 got that and he was already wealthy so certainly got out with a good amount of money while you know you saw people getting laid off and losing their jobs i think there's one point in the story where he like shows up um for the layoffs like in his ferrari as people like half the company's getting laid off like the guy clearly didn't care about his fellow peer um if he even considered them peers at all and you sometimes need that kind of that that crazy immoral person not need but sometimes it takes that crazy immoral person to like actually make this kind of stuff happen now could metroid prime have been made without all of this and eh, maybe probably but it is interesting to see like how you have this like one person who is really the engine behind it all at the beginning and is has this kind of cult of personality behind them, which, like as you said, flew in the face of what Nintendo was known for and strove for and what their image was based on. And certainly I, I would have to think that when they made that visit to Retro Studios, that they had some kind of an idea of what kind of person he was. And then they learned much more after oh, that. I, I feel like. I feel like their visit to the studio was essentially to see what they had, get rid of everything that they didn't need. I'm sure that the the motions were in works like before Nintendo of Japan ever set foot in America to get rid of this guy. Absolutely. Yeah, wild story, and uh, it gets even wilder. The new Retro Studios boss is a guy named Steve Barcia, and this guy, to his credit... He, he finished and he shipped Metroid Prime, but apparently he just worked everybody there into the ground. They were working 12, 13, 14, 16-hour days. Uh, one employee said he worked for 48 hours straight. Um, they got it out, but at the expense of everybody at Retro Studios. And, you know, it, it the game had already been delayed a couple of different times at this point, so... This really was crunch time, but this this kind of seemed like something above and beyond. You can bet that if this was happening in 2020, there would be a uh, an expose about There'd it. There'd be a Kotaku article written immediately. Oh, yeah. We'd have that long form editorial. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and as much as I love Metroid Prime, nothing is worth, you know, crunching human lives to death. <laughs> um it is, you know, for I mean, if this game launched in 2003, it's still going to be amazing. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. The, the reality of the situation is that's how it went down, and we ended up getting a great game from it, but at the cost of, you know, a really awful way of doing business. And that is, you know, a reality we see in the games industry time and time and time again. We just recently saw it with The Last of Us and Naughty Dog, and I'm sure there are multiple cases of crunch and poor business practice happening right at, as we speak right now for some AAA or, or now they're quadruple a games that are being made now um yeah it's it's you know i remember i think in uh one part of the article they said you know there's a quote it's like this awful sociopathic way of doing business but that's what happened we just had some really good really really smart people that knew how to execute on the team by the end of it so it, it did it did hone the team like a you know a sharp knife there being worked to death and it created an absolute masterpiece of a game but it is really, you know, it is unfortunate to read back and see, you know, you don't remember those specific developers who put, you know, like you said, multiple days at a time and hours and hours and hours of their lives into a really small period of time to create, you know, what is just a form of entertainment for us that is not necessary. That's a privilege, you know, to play and to have and to be able to have the time to to play it and run it or whatever it is um, at the cost of people who worked really hard, were probably underpaid or probably overworked, who were definitely overworked, who were definitely underpaid and to, you know, read back on definitely. it, you know, it, it sucks because you have this guy who is super wealthy and gets to, uh, reap the rewards of it, so to speak. And of course, Nintendo certainly did and still does to this day, whether or not they not, they even acknowledge the games at this point, but there are people who were, were grinded to dust making this game as they were, uh, for echoes and for other games that have been made, uh, throughout time and, and you kind of now get to see the, the light of it, but during when it's happening, it sucks. You can't really, you know, be there for those people or, or make those conditions better, even though it does return sometimes some really great products. Well, the story gets worse before it gets better. Um, before actually, before we move on this, this is another quote that stuck out to me that kind of 
confirms or at least kind of gives some weight to this something that we were talking about earlier, Dak. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, one team member says they heard years later Nintendo planned to shut Retro down after Metroid Prime's launch, finally getting a game from it and cutting its losses afterwards. But then the game launched and it was a hit. So it it very much like seems to me that if this had went the way of other M and it was just a not very good game, we, you know, we wouldn't have a Retro Studios. We wouldn't have gotten the the Prime Trilogy or the new Donkey Kongs or, you know, Metroid Prime 4, whatever else that they've done over the years. So it's very interesting to see how, you know, how history can weave and, and woe. Um, mm. But yeah, you were mentioning they the employees of Retro were overworked and underpaid. One thing that Retro did to kind of rebuild morale is they implemented a... Uh, royalty program based off the game sales so they went through and they devised kind of a uh, distribution method to make sure that everybody had a fair percentage of the royalties go to them everyone from the senior executives who obviously would get a little bit more but not an absurd amount more That's down great. to every junior artist and and whatnot um, a lot of the team members at retro said that they had a really fair distribution system but then our boy Steve Barcia came in and completely reshook up, changed the whole thing. He blew it all up and he changed it so that all of the royalties went to the top executives and like the bare scrap minimum went down to the rank and file who had just broken their back for the last year making this game. And to make matters even worse is accounting sent out this distribution to the entire studio so everybody could see how much the executives were making compared to how much they were making. This is another thing that is just unbelievable to me. This seems like how does this happen in a place of business? Uh, I'm again not surprised. I feel like this is so common in so many workplaces. And Steve Barcia was the the one who replaced Spagenberg. He was the then vice president of product and development. And he was like the similar but different to Spagenberg. Spagenberg like created the team, but he and created a pretty poor working situation in terms of like there was way too ambition, too much ambition. They work on too many games and engine and all that stuff. And then he just leaves. And you have this guy, who now you have a more focused studio, but this guy is focused, uh, Steve Barcia, entirely on the Laser yeah on the end product, right? Which again results in the same uh, grinding down of people, and of course just to see that like. Uh, <laughs> realizing how much people were actually making from that and having that all sent out to the entire company, that's a, that is a, a morale Spartan laser. That just destroys your entire existence. And it sucks, especially for, you know, because the people who do the hardest work are those who are at the lower ends of, of you know, the bottom part of the barrel for the, uh, very oh, often. Of course. You know, so to see that... And uh, in, in any media, yeah, that's, that's the truth. Almost in every industry, almost in anything ever. It's always, you know, the people at the bottom that are doing the most work and getting the least, um, you know, the least out of it. So, yeah, I mean, that that was, you know, in the article, they say for many, this was the straw that broke the Campbell's back. Absolutely, it was. And I, I couldn't, if I was working there, that was, I mean, I would be very hard pressed to, like, be able to not even just continue, but, like, put my all into whatever I'm working on, you know? It's just crazy to me that, like, this was public. Um, and that th- this was released to the studio. Like, if you're going to screw your employees, like, keep it a secret, right? Like, it, it just seems like such a such a backwards move for this Mr. Barcia to make. And, and you know, for all of his faults, he seemed like he at least had a good head on his shoulders. He he got everybody working and finished. And he he looked like he at least had a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just seems like such a, such a weird move for him to make. But... Um, you know, you said it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And allegedly, basically every employee at Retro Studios was essentially going to walk out on Barcia and Retro. And Nintendo got a hold of this and were just like, no, 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 we will fix this. And uh, they parted ways with Barcia basically to, to save or to stop this mutiny from happening. Uh, he was replaced with Michael... Kelbach? Is that how you'd say his name? Kelbach? Michael, um, anyways, Michael Kelbach? Guy, I think it's Kelbach. Yeah. So Kelbach was uh, working as Nintendo's director of business development at the time, and his run seemed to be what finally kind of stabilized Retro Studios. 
Um, of course, them having a working engine helped as well. But like, mm-hmm. you know, he got there and kind of steered the ship towards the Metroid Prime sequels and, and everything else that we got. Um, I actually, I don't, I didn't research how long his reign actually lasted, but he did at least at the time seem to finally bring a sense of stability and leadership to the studio. So, you know, it's, it was a long road to get there and a lot of crazy stuff ended up happening, but you know, retro did it. And of course, as we know, Metroid prime goes out and is one of the best reviewed games ever. And we're still talking about it almost 20 years later. So, you know, it's, it just goes to show that like, even when you have this incredibly troubled development with this incredibly extenuating set of circumstances, you can still, you know, pull some gold out of that. So it's just a crazy story to me. Yeah. And I believe Kelbaugh is still the president and CEO of Retro Studios to this day. So um, I actually, I met him in 2014, I believe at E3 for the Smash Imitational. And he was like, if you're ever in, in Austin, Texas, let me know. I'll give you a tour of Retro Studios. I was like, oh, great. And I never, ever, <laughs> I've never been to Texas. <laughs> oh, buddy, why don't we fly in Austin, I have, Texas? I, I have doing? his business card right in my hands right now. Let's go. So I have his direct line and cell and his email. <laughs> and I'm not going to share it, obviously, but I have it. So whenever you want to make that trip, whenever the pandemic's over, I'll be like, hey, man, remember when we met uh uh, six years ago, <laughs> they still is that still a good offer? Um, but clearly that was a good move because the guy's been working there for almost you know over a decade and a half, almost two decades now, and Retro has seen way more success since then. So it was probably a a pretty good move to bring my man Cowboy in. All right, so some real quick epilogue here. Steve Barcia, after he was let go from Retro, would go on to work with Electronic Arts, and he was working on some of the Def Jam games. I bet you that that football game surfaced in that, because weren't there a bunch of, like, Def Jam, like, basketball games and stuff like that? Hmm. Uh, I bet I don't know, actually. <laughs> I bet you the DNA of that kind of made its way over there. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, more interestingly, uh, Spankenberg went on to found Top Heavy Studios, developer of the adult-orientated trivia game the guy game infamous for featuring live action footage of women taking their tops off during spring break and fittingly enough in 2004 this slime ball got sued by an underage girl for featuring her in the game so don't know what happened to him then it sounds like he's kind of disappeared from the public eye yeah uh that's well you gotta have that 2257 you gotta have them sign that 2257 that soda works in the cable and tv industry 2257s like the legal like hey everyone in this production is of age and we have proof of that my man's to not get the 2257 so you got to make sure that's always there um and actually it's 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 nice looking back this is oh this uh, article actually came out two years ago but before my birthday on the 29th um but looking back at this article, it's funny how it's aged because at the end of the article, they write, according to reports, the company, uh, Retro, is currently working on a Star Fox retro, uh, racing game called Star Fox Grand Prix. Remember that? We all thought that there was going to be a racing Star Fox game coming out. And that apparently was, or even that or another game was going through a rocky development cycle that ended up being canceled. You know, it goes all the way back to the beginning of Retro where there was some kind of rocky development cycle involved, and then they were involved somehow. And then, of course, we go all the way back to current times, Metroid Prime 4, rocky development cycle, and who ends up being involved? Retro Studios. So uh, whether it's a blessing or a curse, they're somehow always getting their hands dirty in something that's already pretty muddy. And I, I very much doubt that the, the Star Fox Grand Prix game is, is ever coming. I doubt we'll ever see Spangenberg again. Um, but I don't doubt that we'll see some great games from at least one more great game from retro. But as I said at the beginning of this, you know, it's a completely different studio. McElbore might still be there, but the teams are all different. I, I believe, you know, majority of the people involved in even Metroid Prime 3 are, are gone by now, potentially. Maybe they don't even work in the industry anymore. They certainly, they work somewhere else. And at the end of the article, uh, you know, the round things out, uh, you know, they were talking about, you know, three quarters of the people you would talk to had a really awful experience in terms of developing Metroid Prime or their time at the studio. Uh, it's not a blast being anywhere near any of the layoffs. There's a lot of negativity there, but I put out uh, one of the best games I've ever going to make. The people they worked with were some of the most talented people they were going to work with. So 
there's always a bright side, and of course we end up getting Metroid Prime, which is the best Metroid game ever made. So, you know, it's there's there's always some kind of bright side to it. There's always a diamond in the rough, but it is it, it is crazy to, to look back. I, I wouldn't say it's an unbelievable story, because now that what we know about crunch and, and working conditions in the industry, especially with how popular social media and the internet is these days, and how quickly word spreads, and how uh, news spreads, and all of these articles being written, I don't think it's unbelievable to see this, but... It is unbelievable how all of that wrapped up together to make one of the most iconic games ever made, one of the most critically acclaimed trilogies ever made, and made for a, a pretty interesting story at the end, which we then all comes down to being read about and talked about on the Omega Metroid podcast, where everything comes to a center. It is, of course, the focal point of the world and the industry, so... I'm glad we were able to go through this because it is my favorite Metroid game and uh, re, re uh, living a little bit of how it was made is always interesting to me. You know, I just, I think that it's an unbelievable story. Not, not that there are studios out there crunching employees or like having really shady business practices. To me, the unbelievable part is that this happened under the umbrella of Nintendo, which is yeah, that's true. such a structured company that it's, it's just... It's crazy to think that this happened under their watch. Mm -hmm. So it's just very out of character. And, you know, it's just the unbelievable part, too, is that from all this chaos, we got one of the greatest video games ever made, which, you know, a lot of troubled developments have led to really terrible games. And you can kind of trace those troubled developments and look and see, okay, that's why this game turned out like this. But Metroid Prime seemed to defy all of those odds and it gives me hope for metroid prime 4 because you know we've kind of come full circle back to almost back to where we started way back when at the beginning of retro studios so you know it's it's kind of it's kind of poetic i think and uh i'm i'm glad that we got to talk about this today it's definitely poetic and maybe we'll i mean i i can't wait for metroid prime 4 i really hope though that we're not in another you know rocky development situation Maybe that's what it takes to make a good Metroid Prime game, though. Maybe we need a little bit of crunch. We need some rocky development. We need Ferraris and softcore porn sites and pool parties to make a good Metroid Prime game. And I guess we'll have to find out. Again, I really cannot wait until we, we learn the truth of how Metroid Prime 4 has been developed. There has to, I mean, there has to be a ton of stuff that's behind the scenes, and we have no idea what's happening. The game has been, quote-unquote, in development for years now, and we literally haven't seen... A, like a, a a a split second of frame of gameplay we haven't even seen anything involving the game at all we don't even know if that's the actual title we haven't seen samus ridley nothing so i really hope we're, we're gonna have to wait like 10 years to learn what happened yeah if you're if you're out process. there if you're listening but it's gonna be worth the wait if one of you works at retro right now and is listening to this show my dms are open if you got a screenshot i won't share it i might share it with andy but i won't share it I just show me something, man, or whoever, a man, woman, whoever, show me what you got. I need something. I, I need it directly in my vein. We got Hyrule Warriors today. Maybe I don't want Metroid Warriors, but I do want some kind of Metroid news. But this is a good story. And, you know, it really goes back to like how things have changed in a way, but they really they really haven't. And again, like you said, it is unbelievable that this happened under the umbrella of the watch of Nintendo. But at the same time, it almost didn't happen under the watch of Nintendo because they weren't watching half the time. That's kind of why it was able to go so rampant and out of control. And if they didn't step in, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what would happen to Retro Studios? Who knows if Metroid Prime would have happened at all? But I will say, I think if, if uh, Retro went under or it didn't go well, I do think we would have gotten Metroid Prime at the end of the day, because it really does go back to Miyamoto being like, a Metroid first-person shooter game is something that should be made, or was an idea, or a vision, or something, a consideration by the guy, enough for him to put the faith in this untested, out-of-control studio. Maybe if it wasn't retro, it would have gone to someone who might have been more competent looking at the time, would have been as good, who knows, it probably could have been, probably might, maybe not, but uh, it is wild to see how, you know, Things could have been different had Miyamoto not made that trip or Retro uh, didn't end up getting the Metroid IP or if the their version of it failed or whatever. We can only speculate, but it is interesting to think how it could have gone down. But, 
you know, true uh, reality is often stranger than fiction, and we certainly got a pretty uh, wild That's story right. from what actually happened. Well, and I can't wait for 18 years down the line when we're <laughs> recording episode 2000 or whatever it's going to be about yeah. the development of Metroid Prime 4. Um, all right. Well, that is uh, that's going to do it for us. I am crossing my fingers that we get some kind of a shadow drop Metroid announcement. Maybe it's a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a new 2D game. Maybe it's a remake of something. I don't know. I take anything at this point. Absolutely. So fingers crossed. You know, news is coming fast and furious. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Dak, is there any parting words that you want to say before we skedaddle? Uh, I've got really nothing. Just be sure to check me out on Twitch at DakCity underscore. Uh, I'm definitely going to be playing some more Metroid soon. Andy, i got to have you on so we can do some Metroid stuff soon. i got to help you out. Get into the twitch sphere, man. It'll be great. I'm sure you love it. Um, well, start start playing some Metroid. Last time I checked, you were playing the worst 3D Mario game, Mario Oh my Sunshine. god, dude. Sunshine oh! is so good, okay? I don't know what you have this... This hatred for what is clearly the best we, 3D we better, Mario game. We better continue Super this Mario 64 wishes here. it was sunshine, and I'll stick to it. Um, you're right. I do got to stream some more of that. But yeah, it has been fun, and uh, that's that's all I've got for you. Uh, all right. Well, we hope that you guys had fun listening to this tale of Retro Studios. Uh, we want you to check us out over on Twitter at Omega Metroid Pod. I am at Spateri316. Dak is at DakCity underscore. And we want you to check us out over on uh, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Like and subscribe to the Omega Metroid podcast. Tell a Metroid fan in your life. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you then. Yes. <laughs>